0: You are listening to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 33. Today we're talking with our guest winner, Laura Parkinson, about her journey into Chinese medicine.
1: Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fiona Gitcham. And today we're talking with the winner of our listener competition, Laura Parkinson. Hi, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me. Oh, It's great to have you with us. A few months ago, we launched a competition for our practitioner listeners, and the winner gets to be a guest on the show. We'll be running this competition again, so please look out for it on our Facebook page if you'd like to win a guest spot too. Laura Parkinson has been working in healthcare since age 16, and after some time working in Navy medical clinics, she decided to study Chinese medicine. She studied at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine in both Chicago and San Diego. During her time in school, Laura completed internships at the University of California, San Diego, and at a clinic that provided free acupuncture to military veterans and their families. She now runs the Iowa Total Family Wellness Clinic, which you can find at www.iowatotalfamilywellness.com. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add Heavenly Chi Podcast to your favourite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And if you really enjoy our show, we'd love it if you would rate us on iTunes.
0: Hi, Laura. It's so great to have you on the show and congratulations for winning our competition. Thank you very much. So for the listeners out there, uh, Laura has graduated in 2015 and has been going through the process of setting up her new clinic and learning all of the things involved in the reality of becoming a Chinese medicine practitioner and the adjustments that you go through after going through school. So this episode might be really interesting and useful for other recent graduates. Um, but also having read and learnt a little bit about Laura's journey, I think she has a really interesting journey in medicine and it's certainly a very different journey from the kind of journey I've had. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you, Laura, and learning a little bit more about the things that you've learned along the way and especially because you've been involved in the Navy medical clinics and working with veterans and that's the kind of thing that I haven't really had any experience with at all. So, right. Yeah. So how about you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in working in healthcare at the young age of 16?
2: Well, I started in high school. They had a, a just a co-op program where you could work as a nurse assistant um, in different medical and surgical floors. So I started very young knowing that I, I liked – Helping people feel better and it has just kind of progressed through that time Um, when I Graduated high school. I still worked at the hospital a bit, but I knew I needed to do something different with the course of my life, so I uh, ended up joining the Navy and uh, I used uh, I was in the Navy for 10 years uh, working as a a medic um, a corpsman
0: So working in the Navy as a medic, that must have been really interesting. And I'm really curious about the kinds of conditions that you were treating and also how much of it would have been emergency medicine.
2: So my specialty when I was in the Navy was not um, emergency medicine. My specialty when I was in the Navy was aviation medicine. So um, I didn't do any frontline combat medic care or anything i did a lot of preparation i did some training with pilots and um, air crew to teach them what to anticipate when they were flying at altitude and i just did a lot of the behind the scenes care for for the pilots and stuff so um it, it was uh pretty interesting you you got to see a lot of the the training aspects of it these these pilots um you know that fly for the Blue Angels. If anybody has ever heard of them, they, you know, we got to do the behind-the-scenes medicine for them just to make sure that they were well enough to be able to to fly and and do all those things.
1: Wow! And that sounds really interesting. What are some of the special considerations that you need to um, take into account for these people?
2: Well, for pilots and aircrew mainly, it would be altitude. When they're flying at altitude, um, we would have to teach them what the the signs and symptoms were if they were getting altitude sickness, just making sure that they're medically clear, that they weren't going to have some kind of medical condition that would be um, dangerous when they were flying aircraft.
0: Does that also include them experiencing G-forces? Yes. That's pretty much all I know about that level of flying.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Watch out for the G-force.
0: That's right. (laughs) That's all I
1: know as well. I'm thinking of like you know, Apollo missions to the moon and, and things like that. Yeah, I really have no idea what needs to happen for these people. I mean, they right. could have a like a an embolism or like a stroke
2: or is, is that one of the risks? Well, it is. And um, have you heard of decompression sickness? Yes. Yeah. Divers get that often when they're coming to the surface. But at, when you're flying at altitude, you can also have that as well.
0: And is that because they... Oh, you've had it from diving or from flying?
2: Oh, from flying. So we, I would fly in an altitude chamber, which was a simulated atmosphere. So they would um, simulate us flying at 25,000 or 35,000 feet. And then they would make pilots hypoxic on purpose so that the pilots and the air crew would understand what was happening to them as they were being oxygen deprived. But as you go back down in altitude you do have a risk for decompression sickness. And so there were several people that, you know, had to do time in the decompression chamber to kind of fix those embolists.
0: Right. And so on a commercial airline, obviously the cabin is pressurized. And these, these type of military planes, the cabin's not pressurized at all, or is it just not pressurized as much?
2: It's not pressurized as much. I think it depends on the type of aircraft that they're flying, but... You know, in, when we're flying commercial airline, airlines, we're you know, actually at, what, 48,000, 35,000 feet, but the cabin pressure is maybe only 8,000 or mm. 10,000 feet, so.
0: Wow. And some of those um, symptoms of hypoxia, does that include the delirium and laughing? And so it's something that someone really needs to be familiar with in order to recognize when it's happening to them? Yes. Yes. But it looks like fun, but it's very dangerous.
2: It is dangerous. And you would see you would see these young kids who would be in there and they would, you know, try to be very brave and, you know, a little bold and see how long they could go without having to reapply their oxygen mask. And you would see them pass out because the time from, you know, becoming hypoxic is so short to the time where you actually lose your capability to to save yourself. Um, I think that was kind of an eye opener for them.
0: Wow, that's really interesting. I, and I can imagine, too, you know, the type of death-defying personality that gets drawn to that job as well. <laughs> so right. they would They would have to learn. Right. The top gun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah,
1: they'd have to learn to curb that the ego as well in order to keep themselves safe and their teammates safe. And they do. They do a good job. Yeah. Hopefully the passing out happened in the test chamber.
2: Oh, uh, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Great. <laughs> We're pleased to know that nobody was hurt in the, uh, in the recording of this episode.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm going to jump a little bit around here. I'm having recently moved from a very low altitude coastal part of Australia where I've spent most of my life at low altitude. I've moved to Boulder, which is only about 6,000 feet. But I have experienced the first time I came here, I did experience uh, mild altitude symptoms even though it was, it was quite unpleasant for me. It was on about the third day, I almost had a migraine and I'm not a, a migraine pattern person and some nausea. Um, and I came across some a Chinese herbal formula specifically designed to help people deal with altitude. So the second time I came to Boulder, I t- started taking the formula several days before arriving and I had no symptoms at all. So... I'm not sure if you were aware of Chinese medicine back in the ta- your time in the Navy, but I'm just making a little segue that there could perhaps have been a possibility for Chinese herbs in that setting.
2: Right. I, I think there's lots of times now that I am a Chinese medicine practitioner where I look back in the past and think, boy, I really could have used an herbal formula back then, or boy, I really could have used some acupuncture back then. But it's good to know that I have those tools at my disposal now.
0: Yeah. And so what made the link for you between working in the, the Navy to studying Chinese medicine?
2: There are aspects of Navy medicine where it is almost like um, an assembly line. And it doesn't matter whether you are, you know, six feet tall or you're five feet tall, if you have back pain, you're going to get the same protocol for that pain. Mm-hmm. Some Motrin, some ice, Um and I developed a very severe case of insomnia and anxiety and it, it would just cycle me through all of these different medications and with these terrible side effects and you know these side effects that would impact my performance at work and just through having all of these terrible side effects from these med- trying to help me sleep I feel like they're actually doing more damage than if I just was dealing with the insomnia or anxiety on my own. So I started researching ways, more holistic, alternative ways to deal with insomnia and anxiety which eventually um, brought me to Chinese medicine. I actually started at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine back in 2004 when I was still in the Navy. But then I was deployed over to Kuwait and I put that on hold until 2011 when I actually went back to school full time.
0: Wow. And were you spending your your spare time over there reading about Chinese medicine or is that naive to uh, assume that you had some spare time?
2: I I would like to say that I was, but I I really wasn't. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Sounds good in theory, though, but I'll be honest.
0: So when you uh, started with Chinese medicine, was it Chinese medicine that gave you the health answers that you were looking for for yourself?
2: Absolutely. It took a while because I was going to school full time for acupuncture and Chinese medicine. And then I was also, you know, I have twins and they were four years old and then I uh, was married at the time. And so all of that kind of interferes with dedicating yourself completely to getting better. But through through that whole journey through school, I was able to completely take care of the insomnia and the anxiety. So big accomplishment.
0: Yeah, that's great news. And there are just so many people out there that have anxiety and sleep difficulties that if you have a really good grasp on just those two areas alone, there's so many people that you can help. Right. I think definitely anxiety and sleep issues are on the rise. I have many theories about that, but even just with our technology and using um, devices all day long and at night after dark and the way that it affects our sleep cycles, there's just so many people who aren't sleeping well.
2: Right, and at a younger age, I, I feel like I have several uh, patients that are teenagers still in high school who are already coming in with those kind of issues.
0: Yeah. Well, the world is is kind of a scary place right now, so I, I feel as though if you don't have a little bit of anxiety, you might not be paying attention.
2: A healthy amounts, right?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: There's such a thing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a really um... – you know, from the, from the point of view of developing empathy and understanding of your patients, like if you've had, you know, really really acute symptoms that have led you to, to TCM as a patient first or, you know, through the course of your study and through the course of your, your career that you, you know, from time to time, you know, none of us are gods and we all get sick at different times. I think it's a very it can be a very eye-opening experience, you know, to be unwell and to have, you know, really acute and or severe symptoms because it allows you to really get it, like, where your patients are at. If they're coming in and saying, I'm just not sleeping or I haven't slept in six months, to understand what that might be like for them. I think it's really nice that, um, you know, the way that we interact with our patients allows us to have that type of interface whereas in a conventional medical setting you know that that level of developing rapport by perhaps sharing your own experience is really like it's really not encouraged at all.
2: Right. Right and I find that the 10 minutes that I spend sitting with my patient in the intake and actually listening to them and then maybe being able to share some of my own personal experience does um so much more for them building trust in you and and being comfortable with the medicine that you're providing
1: yeah totally so how have you found um the process of setting up yourself in clinic as a tcm practitioner
2: uh it's been it's been difficult um but enlightening and uh I feel very grateful to be in the area that I'm at because I don't, I didn't have an option of of working under um, somebody else. I didn't have an option for even you know renting a space with a chiropractor or something like that. I I had to start small. I you know I just had a second bedroom in uh, my apartment and I used that. I dedicated that as my treatment room for the first six months, and then after that, I was able to rent a larger space that used to be a dentist's office here in Iowa and um, turn that into um, a two-roomed clinic. And so that's been, you know, I'm still learning the ins and outs of running a business, but its you learn something new every day. Yeah, how are you finding the difference between, you know, your previous experience
1: in the Navy and the way that you're running your practice now, interacting with your patients and...
2: I actually think that being in the Navy and doing my time in the Navy has prepared me well for opening a practice just because you you have the discipline and the ability to work those long hours and to kind of um, you know push through those areas that are kind of stressful so i'm I'm pretty grateful to have that experience from the Navy to help me as I'm you know, embarking on this journey with opening my own practice.
0: Hmm. I think there's two areas in the Chinese medicine schools where a lot of graduates can stumble over. And one of them is whether or not they've cultivated a medical bedside manner yet. And so in that respect, all your time in the Navy and working in medicine, I'm guessing that part for you would have been really one of the easy parts. And the other area where I've noticed a lot of new graduates, and especially when, you know, when I was going through the course, there was really most of us thinking, great, so I just need a whole lot more business training. Um, yes. <laughs> so, you know, this is a, yes. a large, I think those two areas are usually the largest aspects of what we may feel we were under-trained in.
2: Absolutely. We we did have a very informative practice management class, but I really feel like you don't get that perspective. You know, it's it's all about perspective, and you don't get that perspective until you are knee-deep in the middle of opening your own business. You know, you're not just an acupuncturist. You're also a small business owner and entrepreneur. You have to be able to have those business skills as well in order to be successful.
1: It's almost like the, you know, the training that we get at, at school – should really involve you know developing your marketing collateral starting to develop relationships with your nearby you know uh, um allied health professionals and GPs and and specialists and so forth like actually doing the stuff so that when you graduate you've got your collateral you've got your patient intake form already made. You've got, you know, all of your treatment plans, stuff that you're going to give to your patients already made up. Like that would be a far better way, I think, than just, you know, write a business plan, which is, well, I mean, maybe maybe other people are getting that at their school. But, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, really for most practitioners, you know, you're going to Chinese medicine school because you really believe in you know, you really believe in TCM and you want to have that as your career, you know, in holistic medicine. But you end up actually spending a lot of your time and effort not necessarily on refining your, your skill but on learning how to be an entrepreneur. Right. Which is a whole different, you know, people do an MBA to get that skill. Right.
0: Mm. I mean, what was just a recent interview we did with Brad Wisnant, who um, Claire quoted as well as having said that giving the advice to practitioners that about 80% of our ongoing study ought to be in, in business. Right. And that's really yeah, okay. key to being successful. You don't have to specialise in everything every year, every time you study. Um, but you need to continually learn uh, business things, especially with technology changing as well, you know. Um, there's a lot you can even learn about making your website successful and updating that knowledge every year.
1: Mm. What are some of the things that you're finding, um, Laura? Now that you're in, now that you're in clinic, you've been practicing for a year or two now. What are, what are some other things that you're finding that? Um, you know, <laughs> I wish I had to learn this at school.
2: I think probably the, the most pressing issue was is just how much of a business person that you do need to be. And I don't think that uh, – I, I think it's a little different in my situation. I'm, I'm practicing in a town of 6,500 people, and they really love their newspaper. So you know, I had to step back and say, well, you know, maybe – just even advertising in a newspaper would be a good marketing tool for me. Whereas, you know, if in a bigger city of San Diego and Chicago, I kind of feel like you would just be lost in the, the mix if you did a, a newspaper ad. You know, so for what what may work in like bigger cities and bigger populations where there might be a, a larger pool of acupuncturists and Chinese medicine practitioners, it's a little different here. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, that the, the schooling and, and the class for the practice management caters to, you know, you're going to be practicing in a, in a larger area. So, I mean, I can't ask for that specific specialty. You know, can you, can you give me some pointers on opening up in a small town? But it definitely, you know, I had to stop and, and think about how it's going to be different here as opposed to a larger city.
0: And being the only Chinese medicine practitioner in your small town, how have you found the idea of getting referrals from other types of health practitioners? Are they learning about Chinese medicine from you as well? Or have you found that not necessary or how's that going? Well, I think that
2: no matter where you go, word of mouth is going to be the best referral that you can get. Um, so but, you know, just getting here, I did reach out to the chiropractor who knew I was going to be coming back here anyway, and he was interested in more of a holistic kind of um, lifestyle anyway. So that kind of, you know, our, our types of medicine blend well together. And there is, you know, one or two practitioners, nurse practitioners at the local clinics who don't like to prescribe a ton of medications, and they have seen that. You know, I can be used as a referral so that you don't have to jump to such drastic measures. Exhaust all options before you have to have surgery or, you know, be put on this medication for the rest of your life. Well, I guess that, um, you
1: know, that has the potential to be quite a powerful marketing tool as well. Like if you are able to keep someone off medication or if you can help someone to avoid surgery, then, you know, that type of news travels fast in a small town.
2: It does. I I had my very first and my only gallbladder patient the other day and she um, she was having all the gallbladder attack signs and symptoms and they did a scan on her gallbladder and it was filled with the sludge and you know the the doctors immediately wanted to say well we're going to take your gallbladder out. And I said just give me three months to see if you can we can make you feel better and we got her nausea under control and I put her on a formula for a gallbladder and she went to her doctor follow-up three months later, and her gallbladder is fully functioning. And she said, I'm so glad that I came to see you because if not, they would have taken my gallbladder and I would have not known any better. So it's just those little those little victories that, you know, definitely, you know, she will tell five people who will tell five people and hopefully, you know, word will spread that way as well. And that that could become
1: <laughs> that could become part of part of the standard practice in your town. That the um, you know if there's enough cases that they you know the doctors see that you're doing a good job, then then it could be hey go and see Laura and we'll see you in you know we'll see you in three months to recheck it unless it gets worse. In the meantime, don't worry about it. Take your herbs. <laughs> I hope
2: so. That would be great.
1: Yeah. Surgeries are so costly. I mean, in Australia, it's all free on, on Medicare, that type of surgery anyway, emergency mm-hmm. surgery. But um, I guess that, you know, in in the States, it costs you every time you've got to do something like that.
0: Right. So how about your personal journey with Chinese medicine and having been exposed, you know, because you have a total family wellness clinic, You you're taking in everyone and anyone with whatever they've got that you need to attend to. But are there areas of Chinese medicine like acupuncture systems or herbal systems or specialties that you, you're becoming interested in and planning on looking deeper into?
2: The one thing that I've seen with probably 90% of the patients that come in the door as they're already on some form of medication and many of them, a large percentage of them, are on more than one medication that they've been on. You know, you've got your statins and your blood pressure medications, and I would probably say 50% of my clientele has type 2 diabetes. So what I am interested in now is the manifestation of all these side effects from taking these Western medications for such a long period of time, like a functional ma- medicine aspect of it, which micronutritional deficiencies are you going to get from taking um, metformin or, you know, your statin drug for such a long period of time?
0: Does that make sense? Yes, definitely. Claire and I have both developed quite a good side aspect of functional medicine and integrative medicine to go with our Chinese medicine because it does build a lot of trust with patients but also it just gives you more leeway for how you're understanding how your medicine fits in as well.
2: Right.
0: I'm sure Claire has a lot to say about that one.
1: Oh, yeah. (laughs) we gonna be talking on this topic. We'll run out of time for the rest. Um, but yeah I mean I agree with you like so many times people are coming in and they're on statins for example which you know in itself is is a risk because of all of the you know you look at what the research says about you know low cholesterol levels and if your cholesterol's below like 4.2 or you know which in for you guys is well I don't know how that converts but it does it's like a it's not that low. Um, you know your risk of suicidality and depression and alzheimer's just skyrockets and so you know we have to be we have to be mindful of helping to support our patients against those negative effects as well as you know just the the simple fact that it depletes your coq10 and so often just saying to people hey if you're on a statin you need to be on coq10 full stop right yeah yeah that knowing that type of information because often we're you know apart from their you know, their doctor, we might be their, their only other health provider. And so it's not necessarily always, you know, it's not necessarily needed for them to be seeing, you know, six different healthcare providers, go and see a naturopath to make sure that, you know, CoQ10 is right for you. Like sometimes, you know, sometimes that's, that's not going to happen, but we still want to know that what we can do to protect our patients, you know, and if you're using herbal medicine, then that can be, you know, that can go some way as well to, to helping with those nutrient deficiencies.
2: Right, and I think it's just a matter of also educating the patients because I have um, even many patients who have called, some of them have tried to call and say, I don't think I can come in for my appointment today. I'm coming down with a cold and I don't wanna make you sick. And you just being able to inform them like, well actually this is a really great medicine for when you are feeling sick. I can help you know cut that cold time in half and make it so your symptoms are negligible. Um, And it's just know Some people don't think that, oh, maybe these medications that I've been taking for 10 years are actually making me more sick. And it's it's, as much as it is education for myself, it's also education for the patients because I don't think that sometimes their health care providers give them that kind of information so
0: absolutely in a big city as well you know you're working forever to teach everybody that as soon as they start getting the first ache of the flu or the sniffle of the cold or the sore throat that they should call us straight away even if they just drop in and pick up some herbs um Mm -hmm. so hopefully you have good luck with that with spreading the word in a smaller town and eventually everybody knows and they can say quick you sniffled call laura
2: right right and you did If they see my kids too, and I always my children who are eight with Chinese medicine and herbs or if they feel like they're coming down with something I'm always you know throwing some formula down their throat and one of the nurse practitioners their primary nurse practitioner said you know I was looking at their history and they never come in for antibiotics they never come in for sick visits and I said it's because I'm proactive about giving them formulas and doing some Chinese medicine in order to keep them healthy and to prevent them from getting really sick and having to come and get antibiotics or, you know, come in for doctor visits. Absolutely. I find the same. You know, my daughter
1: is two and a half and, you know, she's the only kid in the whole of our mother's group and, at you know, and at childcare that, you know, she's not on antibiotics, she hasn't been diagnosed with asthma, You know, Mm -hmm. there's all of this stuff that she just doesn't really get sick. You know, there's kids that are vomiting, they've got hand, foot and mouth and all kinds of stuff that are around her. Well, not that they they usually get sent home when they're vomiting, but, you know, if gastro goes around, she typically doesn't get it. You know, all of the colds and things, there's a lot that we can do with our medicine to really fortify the body's immune response and it's suitable for all ages and so it's, you know, it's a really great thing that you've, you know, you've had that experience with your own children as well that you can be confident to treat people of all ages. I think that's a great thing.
2: I I think that the one thing that I've um, I've encountered is the lifestyle modifications that you do suggest to your patients sometimes and there are times when you know your patients will look at you and they will say well what do you mean you want me to take dairy out of my diet I mean I'm in a very uh, prevalent area where there's that's how people make their living there's a lot of dairy farms there's a lot of corn and there's a lot of soy around here so um, you know in to have to suggest to somebody that they have to take these staples out of their diet, sometimes they look at you like you have two heads. But um, so I I also find that that's probably one, been one of the most difficult things, because in in this area people are used to going to the doctor and getting their medications and feeling better, and if that doesn't happen, they're not used to you know maybe having to do the work of you know modifying your diet. I'm not saying you can't give that stuff up for, you have to give that stuff up forever. But you do have to do a little work on on their end too. And so that's been a little challenging, I would have to say. I'm sure it's challenging anywhere you go, though.
1: I think particularly, you know, people consider a lot of dietary changes to be more of like a fad or it's, you know, that's something that you do to be trendy rather than something that you do for your health. And I think it's, you know, it can be really tricky sometimes to reframe that for your patients that, you know, you're not trying to get them to, you know, start the zone diet or the South Beach diet or anything like that. You're actually trying to improve their, their medical condition. You know, it's the same way that if a celiac was running a wheat farm, it's like, well... It's, it, it just because that's how you make your living, it doesn't change what your biology thinks about it. Right.
0: I, I couldn't resist saying that two heads are better than one. <laughs> <laughs> There's double the intelligence behind the insight to not have as much dairy.
2: <laughs> but, you know, it's good and I have patients that love to have their one bowl of ice cream every night before they go to bed
0: what about alternative ice creams and dairy alternatives? Are they available in your area?
2: You know, they're not. Oh, Even to go to a Target is uh, 50 minutes from here. Uh, you know, our, the closest Walmart is 20 miles from here, uh, where, where they do start to have those options. You know, I, I've been sending my patients to Walmart because they're starting to carry bone broth there. And... Um, you know, it, just the availability of more healthy options is is not is not readily available to us here yet.
1: Is there a local store that you could maybe partner with that would start to supply some of these or start to stock some of these products?
2: Uh, not really, for a short answer. Um, I think there has to be more demand for it. So if it's just me going in there saying, I need you to carry all of this organic produce and all of these gluten-free options, uh, it, there needs to be more customers going in there and requesting the same thing as well. Yeah. Just because they are such a, this, a small store, you know, so they can't just cater to the you know, either one person who's requesting all this stuff.
1: Yeah. I guess they could always offer you know, to, to do a weekly order and people kind of pre-order if they want it or... Um you know, you could even start a (laughs) co-op. Right, Whoever whoever wants to buy organic groceries and bone broth and all the the stuff that you're recommending, it's like, well, you know, we're putting in an order on Tuesday and it arrives on Thursday and if we all pitch in, then the freight fees are are lower.
2: Right. And I I think that's the beauty of just living in a a smaller area is that I do have the option to kind of, explore that myself. And, you know, I've always thought, you know, I've got so much extra room here at the clinic if I just had to use some of these things, these non-perishables on, on stock here. So I have some teas for the patients that I think would be helpful, whether it be ginger or, you know, just a a dandelion tea or something that will help soothe that liver that um, they they can't get anywhere else. So it's always an option to kind of explore uh, holistic grocery I suppose here in this tiny town.
1: Yeah yeah I guess it's something that would support what you're doing and support your patients. How are you finding like now that you're now that you've been out for a little while in practice and you know you've been using what you've been taught at school what are you what are you looking at in terms of further studies there any particular areas that you're wanting to do more training in? Any particular styles of acupuncture or
2: different approaches to herbal medicine? Just for marketing sake, I feel like well, to go back and get my doctorate. I think that just being able to say like I'm, I'm Dr. Parkinson would, it does, it's perceived different from their patients. Um, just being around here at least for that aspect. I do see so many sports injuries so I am interested in like maybe doing a sports medicine specialty so I'm able to have some more options with that as well. But I, I love herbs and I use herbs whenever I can appropriately with my patients and my patients are starting to love herbs and they will ask me or they'll text me and say, hey do you have any herbs that can help with this or that can help with that. and um, you know, it's just very exciting to be able to, you know, explain the concept of a formula. Like there's not, it's not just one herb, you're not just taking turmeric, you're taking these, you know, several herbs together and they work as a team and I can customize them to what problem you're having and they really appreciate that kind of medicine. So I really like to do that with my patients.
0: That's great. We just d- have done an episode. I'm not sure if it's going up on air before or after yours, but there's an episode on Master Tung Acupuncture, which is mm-hmm. really, really well known for pain. So that might be an area that could be inspiring for you to look into for your sports medicine patients.
2: Is that when you had Brad on the show? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I bought both of his books and I've been using his books to treat my back pain patients with great results. So that's been, yeah, that's been a lifesaver, those two books. It's fantastic. Yeah,
1: I think he's written, I think he's written like seven books.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So he has even yeah. more books, <laughs> more amazing it's, books from Brad.
2: It's not something that you explore when you're in school. We, don't, we didn't ever go through master tongue points. And so it, it was, it's a different concept, and you really have to sit down and say, like, okay, wait, now this is on the back of the finger, uh, but it has been very helpful. I can't imagine incorporating that style of acupuncture into school because school is already so overwhelming as it is, but it's mm. definitely something that people should ex- experiment with on the outside
0: Yeah, I think one of the most fun things after you graduate is that you get to give your own style of study and time to all these different methods of acupuncture, of herbal medicine, and you really get to follow your passion that way. And you just, you know, it's so overwhelming almost that that there is more than a lifetime's worth of possibilities to study.
2: Right. Right. I feel like I will always be a student of this medicine.
0: It sounds to me, Laura, like you have had such an interesting journey and you have a really solid backbone of knowledge about medicine prior to studying Chinese medicine. And that's working really well for you and will continue to do so. And, you know, my my feeling on where you're at now is that you've pretty much hit the ground running and... I just want to say congratulations and good on you. You're bringing this revolution to your town. And if you start the co-op and the organic gardens, then there'll definitely be a revolution.
2: Thank you. <laughs> I'll have to put it on my to-do list, but thank you very much.
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm sure your to-do list is already as long as everyone else's. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty long. Do you have any advice or inspiration that you would have for other new graduates Um, for their first year or two
2: in in practice? I would have to say If I could give them any advice it would be to not give up I think that it can be pretty overwhelming when you first start out and you're trying to take all of your board exams and then you're trying to scrounge up money to open a clinic and you have to decide and make decisions on where you can skimp and where the money actually needs to go to and it can be really daunting so I would say, don't give up. And then I would also say, don't be too proud. You know, there's tons of people out there that are rooting for you. There's tons of people out there who would love to give you their experience and their knowledge. So don't be afraid to ask for help. I love the acupuncturists for Facebook group, um, acupuncturists on Facebook. Yeah, it's because. a huge group. Yeah. It is a huge group. And and if you learn how to search, you can go and you can get some good ideas. And, you know, people are always there and they're always willing to help you. And sometimes it can, you know, you don't want to maybe be burdensome or something. But it's it's a good tool to have. And I, I would just encourage everybody to don't be afraid to ask for help. They've yeah. all been there at some point in time as well. So
0: It's definitely helpful as well when you're, working in isolation and you don't get that experience of working in a clinic with other acupuncturists. I was in a similar situation in a small town where I was the only Chinese medicine practitioner or working on my own as a Chinese medicine practitioner. And then it wasn't until probably my eighth year, ninth year of practice that I started working with other acupuncturists. And that was the first time since my internship. And and that was working at Claire's clinic. And I think just the amount that you're learning can be expanded by through discussion. So it's really great that you've been on the show and just speaking from the perspective of what you've learned and what your journey is. Cause I'm sure there are other new graduates out there that really find it useful hearing from you and. You know, I know we usually have guests on the show that uh, have been working for 30 years or something and are some kind of expert, but it, it's really the quality of discussion with other people and being able to relate to other people being at where you're at in terms of the journey that's just so useful for people. So I want to thank you for being willing to open up and share your journey in that way.
2: Thank you so much. It's been an honor to be able to speak with you and um, yeah, I hope that, that at least I can help one person out there that might need that extra oomph.
1: Yeah, that extra support. You know, there's um, I know there's a lot of new graduates out there as well as practitioners who've been in practice for a long time, but we can definitely all identify with the uh, you know those early stages of practice. It's not easy, and you know, for those who do have the stamina to you know to put in the effort to make it work and the endurance to stay for you know the the length of time that it takes to to make it work for you then um, yeah we can all definitely identify with that so thank you for sharing your experience with us today no problem and thank you to our listeners Uh, we are very happy to have you listen to us each and every week, and we'd love to hear your feedback and thoughts on this episode. If you, um, maybe if you practice in a small town yourself or you've got experience with working in a small town, if you have any anything that you would like to share, any tips, any hints uh, about that, we'd love to hear from you too. If you're a new graduate, tell us how you're going, how you're finding practice and, you know, can you resonate with where Laura's at? We'd love to hear from you. You can do that on our Facebook page. If you're really enjoying the show, then please rate us on iTunes. It helps other people to be able to find us.
0: And thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for being on the show, Laura. And thanks to our listeners. We'll see you next time.